Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're ready to study the Word and ready to focus and that we're in fellowship. And uh, If you need to, use 1 John 1, 9, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we're... Indeed, grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can be here to study your word and to take an overview of the epistle to the Romans, come to understand um, just this basic doctrine, the basic exposition of the gospel and justification by faith, and that we can see what it is, what it consists of, and how it all fits together, and that we can come to a greater appreciation as we look at this uh, tremendous letter from uh, from just as at the whole overview of the, of the letter and see how it all fits together. Father, we pray that we might uh, be able to focus and understand these things tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'll warn you right away that if you try to take everything down, you're probably going to catch something on fire trying to write real fast. But um, I'll try not to lose you because the main idea here is for people, for you to be able to go away with a basic comprehension understanding of how uh, Romans all fits together, uh, and so that you can see these different parts uh, as they as they come together. Now, if you look at your outline, if you have the handout from the last time, I don't know if there were any left over. Sometimes they float around back on the back tables. I don't know, uh, but there were. Um, I had four basic divisions. Four basic divisions, uh, or five basic divisions, rather. Five basic divisions, or six kind of, okay, six basic divisions. And they, they correspond roughly to how this chart is developed. This chart comes out of a book called Talk Through the Bible by uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson. And it's a great little book for, has charts, little overviews, introductions to all the different books in the Bible. And uh, I find it helpful. I had to change it. We printed this out for people. And if you'll notice the second division from 321 to 521 uh, in the chart that was in the handout, because that was taken just as a picture right out of the book that's in uh, that's within the Logos Library, uh, it's got some typos in it, and it, justification was misspelled. And then instead of having imputation, it had uh, some other word. Uh, inspiration, I think it had, inspiration of God's righteousness. So that's what I was doing up here right before class was I caught that and I re, I corrected it and put another text box in there. So we'll have to, uh, Barb, we'll have to put a corrected copy up on the, uh, up on the internet. So we have six basic divisions. Like most epistles, you're going to have an introduction. And then you're going to have a conclusion. So the introduction is covered in the first 17 verses of the, of the first chapter. And the conclusion then is covered in the uh, last part of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16. So the conclusion uh, covers 15.14 through 16.27, and the introduction is the first 17 verses. In the first in the introduction, we, we are oriented to the theme of this epistle. And the theme of this epistle has to do with a vindication of God's righteousness. That word, righteousness, it's from the Hebrew verb uh, tzedak, or tzedakah is the, um, is the noun for righteousness, and the Greek word is dikaiosune. In both languages, the word for righteousness can also mean justice. Righteousness has to do with the standard of something, the, the uh, qualification of something. So when we talk about the righteousness of God, we're talking about the standard of his character. When we talk about justice, we're talking about the application of that standard 
to his creatures. So that's how they, they correlate. So we have righteousness and justice. And in the epistle to the Romans, the issue is uh, vindicating or demonstrating the righteousness of God toward his creatures. How is God righteous in his dealings with his creatures? And how can God's creatures meet the righteous standard of God since we are not perfect and God's standard is absolute perfection. So that is introduced in verses 16 and 17 at the end of the introduction, and that introduces the basic theme. So the main divisions within the development of, of uh, Paul's thought are, first of all, uh, the, fir- the second division has to do with justification itself, and this covers the area from 118 to 511. 118 to 511. And depending on how you look at a couple of things and how they're arranged, actually, that's how I had it initially. I've got to change that. It goes down to 521, okay, which is in agreement with the chart that's up on the board. 521, 118 to 521, God's righteousness uh, is revealed in his condemnation of the whole human race because of sin and the provision of justification to all by faith alone in Christ alone. So this this first basic division from 118 to 511 focuses on the what we refer to as a doctrine of justification by faith. God's righteousness is revealed in condemnation of the whole human race and in providing justification by faith alone in Christ alone. 118 down through 521. Then the third division of the book has to do with sanctification. Sanctification grows out of justification. They are related, and how they're related is the topic of a lot of discussion, and we'll get into that when we get there. You'll get a good orientation to that when we have the uh, Chafer Conference, the Pastors Conference, in March, because the topic of that conference is going to be on sanctification. Now, what we mean by sanctification is not positional sanctification, which is uh, what happens, uh, in, a, in a sense, legally or forensically at the moment of salvation, but it has to do with the spiritual life of the believer. So when you hear the word sanctification, just think spiritual growth, the Christian life, and that's covered in chapters 6, 7, and 8. The, and it's important to understand that distinction, that sanctification grows out of justification, but it is not identical to justification. That's very important to understand that distinction, and we'll get into the issues for that a little bit in the, in the overview, but more so when we go through, go through the entire text. So we go through chapter 6, 7, and 8 has to do with the, uh, how God's righteousness then is lived out in the lives of those who have been justified. How God produces experiential righteousness in those who have already been declared righteous. The uh, next section, which is the, would be Roman numeral 4, if you're trying to write down the basic headings of the outline, that God will vindicate his righteousness in his relationship to uh, Israel. At the end of chapter 8, Paul makes the well-known statement, I quote it frequently, that for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in a to make that a little more succinct, what Paul says is, I'm convinced that nothing on heaven and earth, nothing that any creature does, can separate us from the love of God. The love of God is absolutely dependable, and he is absolutely faithful, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Objection. What about the fact that he seems to have uh, left or departed or cut off his grace from Israel? From the Jews. And so the answer to that then is the focal point of chapters 9 through 11. And in chapters 9 through 11, God demonstrates, or Paul writes in a demonstration, uh, that God is faithful in terms of his righteousness in his past dealings with Israel. That's in chapter 9. 
Then he focuses on God's present dealings with Israel in chapter 10, demonstrating that that though uh, many Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah, that is not because God somehow made them, but that is as a result of their own individual volition. Nevertheless, God has not cut off Israel from his promises and that the promises and the covenants from the Old Testament still belong to Israel. And then chapter 11 it deals with God's future dealing with Israel, that this, the, the current status is not complete, the rejection is not final, and that God eventually will, uh, will pour out his grace to Israel and all Israel will be saved, and that's in uh, Romans chapter 11. Then there's a major shift that takes place when we get to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 focuses on application, or what I also like to call, because the others all has application. I don't know why this is application, that's not. That seems to set it apart as some sort of dichotomy that theology is all well and good, but that's somehow pie in the sky, by and by, it's just abstract. And then at the end we have application. There's a lot of application in those first 11 chapters of Romans. What happens in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 are the implications for day-to-day living from what we've heard uh, already in terms of what God has done for us in justification and what God's provided for us in sanctification. So chapters 12, 12, from 12.1 to 15.13 really has to do with the implications of God's righteousness in the life of the of the believer that is already justified, how God's righteousness is going to be displayed in the life of the justified believer. And there's three sections in there in chapter 12 focuses on how that is displayed in the assembly within the local church. Second, how it's displayed in relationship to human government in, in uh, chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, how that is re- uh, displayed in relationship to weaker believers and stronger uh, believers. And then there is a f- conclusion where things are summarized and he gives uh, more information about his plans to visit Rome. And then the, almost the entire entirety of chapter 16 has to do with greetings to various individuals that he knows in Rome. So that's the broad that's the broad overview. So let's go to Romans chapter 1 and just begin to work our way through, uh, through the structure of the, of the epistle. Now, this introductory section in 117 uh, contains Paul's basic greeting, as he does in almost all of his epistles. He introduces himself, and he gives a reference to his authority. What gives him the right to address this group of believers the way he does, and it always goes back to his apostolic authority. So he begins, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle separated to the gospel of God. So we have the identification of Paul as the author, as the writer of this epistle. Then he uh, describes the gospel in a sort of a summary fashion, the foundation of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Uh, or 2, 3, and 4, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the first thing he's going to do is he grounds what he's going to say, not in the Gospels, not in the New Testament, but he goes back and says this is grounded in the Old Testament. Now, one of the interesting things about Romans is that of all the epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote, and all the times that he quotes from the Old Testament, half of his quotations from the Old Testament are in Romans. Half of all of his quotations from the Old Testament are in the epistle to Romans. That tells us, again, just like when we study Hebrews, that you have to have some understanding of the uh, Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, of the Torah, to understand what Paul is saying. He is developing everything that he says in Romans on the basis of what was revealed in the Torah, in the Old Testament, and in the Prophets. So he begins uh, that uh, which God promised through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God 
by the resurrection in verse 4. So he's going to uh, establish this on the basis of two important things, the fact that Jesus is born of the line of David, and second, that he is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now, that both of those ideas are loaded with Old Testament, uh, uh, with an Old Testament frame of reference. Now, if you paid attention on Tuesday night with what I was covering in Acts on uh, that that Jesus, uh, that Luke says that uh, Jesus during those forty days after the ascension, I mean after the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus taught the disciples concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, what did he say about the kingdom of God? And the more I've worked with this, and I didn't get to this point on on um, on Tuesday night, the more I've worked with this, what you see is that sort of summarizes the focal point of the message of Peter and um, and the other apostles in the book of Acts. And it always goes back to establishing Jesus' credentials as the as the son of David, as the descendant of David, the one who is the focal point of all of the Old Testament prophecies related to related to the Messiah, and so we see this again in in Paul's introduction. The foundation is who was Jesus? Was he who he claimed to be? Was he born of Mary in Bethlehem, fulfilling uh, over a hundred different prophet, messianic prophecies of the Old Testament? Or not that establishes his bona fides. Then in uh, verses um, uh, five through seven, the uh, and, and uh, P- Paul talks about um, ending up in seven. He talks about the readers, those who are in Rome, called to be saints. That's his. Inter- that's just the salutation. And then he talks in the remainder of his of his introduction, of his desire to visit them in Rome. In verses 8 through 15, he talks about how much he wants to be in Rome. He praises them because their faith is known uh, throughout uh, the whole world, which would be the Roman Empire. So they've already developed a reputation. There's a sizable number of believers there. Now, if you look at this, it says to all who are in Rome. He doesn't say to the church in Rome. Because there were many, by this time, there were a number of different churches or congregations in Rome, so he's addressing all of them. He doesn't use the word church until you get to uh, Romans chapter uh, Romans chapter 16. So he is, uh, uh, mentions their faith, their reputation that they're developing throughout the Roman Empire, that he continually prays for them, verses 9 and 10, and his desire to come to them to uh, impart uh, when it says impart some spiritual gift, what that means is to impart doctrine to them from uh, the from his and utilization of his spiritual gift as an apostle. And then he concludes the introduction in verses 16 and 17 with this quote from the Old Testament, from Habakkuk 2.4. Now, again, we're going to have to go back and look at the context of uh, Habakkuk 2.4, uh, but he states in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is a figure of speech for saying I'm proud of the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So he establishes right off the bat the universality of the gospel. It is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And then he says in verse 17, which is the key verse for understanding uh, understanding the epistle, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, it's important to pay attention to how Paul talks about what is revealed as you go through Romans. And here we see that the righteousness of God is revealed. And look at verse 17. Verse 17 then says, for the, uh, verse 18 rather, for the wrath of God is revealed. And so what we see here as he begins the first section in verse 18 is he starts with the judgment of God, which is the outworking of of his righteousness. So his righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the justified ones shall live by faith. 
So then we come to the first major uh, section in the epistle, which is focuses on this whole doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone is the hallmark doctrine in Romans. You find it also developed in Galatians. And Galatians, and I taught Galatians about 12 years ago when I first went to Preston, Galatians was his first epistle. And we see that all of the ideas and the doctrines in Galatians are developed and expanded much more in this epistle to the Romans. The epistle to the Romans is considered one of the finest pieces of any kind of literature of all of history. It is one of the tightest, most logically developed arguments in any kind of religious literature that you will find. And what Paul does is he starts with what is revealed in the Old Testament, and he puts it together logically to show how what is revealed in Jesus in the Gospels is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and that the Christian proclamation that justification, how a person becomes just in his standing before God, if by faith alone isn't something that came along, it wasn't new with Jesus, it's not new with Paul, it's not something that is just that is Christian, but it is grounded in the Old Testament. He's not going to take us just to Habakkuk, who was one of the uh, one of the minor prophets at the end of uh, at the end of the uh, Old Testament. But in Romans chapter four, he's going to take us all the way back to the beginning of the Torah, to Genesis chapter fifteen, uh, verse six, and show that Abraham was justified by faith alone before there was the law, before there was circumcision. And that justification is not something new with Christianity, that is justification by faith alone, but that the law, the Torah, was never intended as a way for man to be justified uh, before God. And so he begins in this first section uh, from verse 18 down to verse 32 to establish the condemnation of all mankind, the condemnation of all mankind, because they have rejected God. He starts off by saying what is known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. This is the revelation of his invisible attributes. But what happens is that they have rejected him. The, the revelation is clear enough that all mankind are accountable. Everyone is accountable. No one is without excuse. Because although they knew God, they don't glorify him as God. There's this rejection of God, and they, mankind, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I believe that what we have here from verses uh, 21 down through the end of the chapter is a summary of what transpired after Adam's fall. It's a historical summation of mankind prior to the call of Abraham when you had the human race who has the testimony of God's uh, God's existence in a clear enough accountable fashion, and yet they rejected it. The uh, uh, summary is, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, so uh, like birds and animals, and so they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. This is what happened in that period before the flood and from the time of the flood to the Tower of Babel, and then God, as it were, just sort of throws up his hands. The whole human race is no good, and he's going to focus on one individual, Abraham, and his descendants. And so the summation there in verses from verses 18 down to 32 is that, the, the Gentiles, that is, before there were any Jews, before Abraham was called, rejected the revelation of God. Then he's going to deal, starting in chapter 2, he's going to deal with two classifications of people. And we often think that somebody can come before God and say, well, I live a good life. I'm a moral person. I, uh, I follow the Ten Commandments. I follow uh, the Torah or I follow whatever uh, uh, moral standard there is. I, have, I, have, I can have justification or I can be vindicated before uh, God's righteousness. And so what Paul shows in just a masterful piece of logic 
in uh, chapter 2 is that the moral person, first he deals with the moral person, then he deals with the uh, religious Jewish person who thinks that because of his relationship to God through Abraham that he has standing with God. And he's going to show that neither one has standing before God because this, the essence of sin is of such a, a level of corruption that nothing that man can do can overcome the basic defect that we have, the basic constitutional defect we have uh, because of sin. And so in chapter 2, in the first 16 verses of chapter 2, he shows that God's righteousness condemns the moral man, the most moral person who tries to uh, uh, find his standing before God based on his, uh, his own morality. And he shows that basically even the most moral uh, people is still a hypocrite because he cannot perfectly, consistently fulfill or live out the standards that he uh, claims to hold to. And so there's always this level of hypocrisy. And he says uh, in verse 8, concluding about the, uh, the moral man, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth... Anyone who doesn't obey the truth, but they obey uh, unrighteousness, there's indignation and wrath, uh, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does, uh, who does evil. And he goes on to say in verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. That is, even though they don't have the Torah, even though they don't have the Old Testament, the oracles of God, even though they didn't have the prophets, nevertheless, he, he argues that they have a standard in their, in their soul that is a residual of their being created in the image and likeness of God, and they know what right is and what wrong is, and they can't consistently do what they believe to be right. And therefore, when they do not do that which they know to be right because of the inherent conscious conscience that is in their soul uh, from God, then they stand uh, condemned. And that even though God is the one who will justify the good, no one is good. No one really lives up to that. We may have a level of relative goodness and a level of relative righteousness when we compare ourselves to, to some other people, but when we compare ourselves to the absolute perfect standard of God, none of us measures up, not, not even the best. And then he goes to, to the second uh, argument in chapter 2, verses 17 down to 3.8 to show that God's righteous standard also condemns the Jews. Now, the Jews have three things that they relied upon that set them apart from the rest of the human race. They did set them apart from the rest of the human race, and they were part of God's blessing for the Jews, but it didn't justify them. It just put them in a position of greater accountability. The first thing that they had was the law, the Torah, the uh, Mosaic Covenant, and they had, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, they had all of the covenants, they had the promises of God, they had the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, not just the first five books, but the Law and the Prophets. They have the, the, the entirety of the law, and yet, even with that standard given to them, none of them can live up to that standard. There is always, there's always failure. They cannot boast in, uh, being completely obedient to the law. The second thing that they would rely on was circumcision. Circumcision wasn't the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. Abraham was the one who was to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant that God had made with him. And so in... Uh, in, in, the, in the historical development of Judaism, there was a reliance upon the fact that because God blessed Abraham, then all of those who came from Abraham were also in this privileged position and would be automatically justified or saved uh, before God because of their relationship to Abraham. And so uh, 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 Paul concludes that it wasn't really outward circumcision. Outward circumcision was just supposed to be a symbol of inward circumcision or separation uh, unto God. And unless there was that inner circumcision, then there was, there was no, uh, no righteousness in the life of the individual. So that's how he concludes in verse 29. But he is a, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, 
whose praise is from, not from men, but from God. And the third thing the Jews would rely on was the fact that they possessed the oracles of God. They were the custodians of divine revelation. And once again, Paul shows that that's not enough to give them justification, put them in a position where they had more knowledge and to whom more was given, more was expected. And so once again, they fail. And the conclusion is, given then starting in verse 9 down through verse 20, that all have sinned. All have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. The uh, moral person cannot live up to God's righteousness, and the Jews cannot live up to God's righteousness. Therefore, uh, he concludes in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no human being who has ever lived that can reach a level of righteousness that, that meets God's approval. So if man can't meet God's approval on his own, how can we be approved before God? How can we be justified uh, before God? And that is what Paul begins to answer beginning in verse 21. So from verse 21 down through uh, the end of chapter 5, we're going to see the uh, explanation of justification by faith alone. And he begins in verse 21. This is really the core of this epistle. The foundation for this epistle is understanding uh, 321 down through 5, uh, 521. And so he talks about the fact that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. There we have that again. Remember I pointed that out? Notice that back in verse uh, 17, um, uh, 117, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then in verse 18, the start of this section, the wrath of God is revealed. And we see the wrath of God is a phrase for his uh, judgment, the execution of his judgment on mankind. So the wrath of God is revealed against Gentiles, against the moral person, and against uh, the religious Jew. All have sinned. And then he says, but now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So how does God reveal his righteousness apart from the law? And he talks about uh, three key words here. The first word is uh, redemption. The first word is redemption, and this is found in, uh, or excuse me, the first word is going to be justification in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. Freely. There's nothing done to earn it, to purchase it, to buy it. You, you work for something, and then we get into this whole question of works. What constitutes works? And last, or two weeks ago, when I went to the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, one of the reasons I wanted to go to that was because the theme this year was on justification by faith. And over the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, there are actually 30 years. It started about 1980-81. The first book in this new school of thought came out called The New Perspectives on Paul. And as part of their teaching is they argue that when Paul talks about the works of the law, he wasn't talking about uh, all of uh, just uh, all of works or doing good. He was just focusing on the ritual of of Moses. He was just talking about the ritual of the Mosaic law, and so uh, and he also uh, in this new school they reject the idea of imputation of righteousness, which of course is very clear in in the text. They reject the view of imputation of righteousness, and argue that the uh, the Reformation concept of imputation of righteousness had to do with a Middle Ages view of justice, not a first century century Jewish view of justice. And the men who are writing within this, this new perspectives of Paul are men who are, some of them are extremely brilliant and extremely well-educated. One of the most well-known is a, is a bishop in the Anglican church by the name of N.T. Wright, and uh, he's been the bishop of Durham, and I think just recently he's taken a new position, and he's teaching at... Um, uh, university in, in Scotland in theology. And he's one of these men who's extremely talented, extremely gifted, uh, and he's led a number of people astray. And one of the reasons this is important for us is because you have to understand 
that just as the principles of warfare, strategy, and tactics haven't changed since the time of Sun Tzu uh, before Christ, uh, nevertheless, as technology comes along in every generation, somebody tries something new. And so even though the general principles never change, you always have to adapt them to where the fortification and how the fortification is being attacked in that generation. And so in this generation, we now have this new assault from within evangelicalism challenging the, our, uh, the Reformation beliefs of imputation of righteousness and our understanding of justification uh, by faith alone. So the justification is now, if there's no imputation of righteousness, it's on the basis of some sort of, of righteousness as a result of, of works. And it just leads us back into a, another uh, cesspool of works salvation. And yet the, this new approach is extremely sophisticated. Uh, there is one pastor who came out of a, uh, a pastor uh, doctrinal church. Uh, I was on his ordination council. And some in the last uh, eight or nine years, he came under the influence of N.T. Wright. First, he became a preterist. He began to reject the notion of a distinction between Israel and the church. He began to emphasize that um, um, a form of replacement theology, and that led him to a, a view of prophecy called preterism, that the judgments uh, that are spoken of that we believe are future actually were all fulfilled in the judgments on Israel in AD 70. And that view is called preterism, and that is, is a heretical view. And so he began to teach that, and then he also picked up Wright's doctrine of justification. And he, re- and he is now teaching this heretical view of, of justification. And one of the men from that church that uh, I don't know wh- whether he's being influenced by this or not, but is, went down to take over a doctrinal group uh, church down in Corpus Christi. There are people in this congregation who have uh, relatives or children who are in attendance at that church up in Pennsylvania. And so this kind of, you may think, well, I never heard of this kind of stuff. This doesn't bother me. This is nonsense. But when people are not willing to keep the guard up, then that's when there's uh, infiltration with false doctrine. And so this is something that is on our doorstep, whether we like it or not, and we have to pay attention to it to some degree just so we are prepared uh, when these issues come up. And so this is very important to understand this, and Paul lays out the principles of justification by faith starting in uh, verses um, uh, 21 down through 31. And in verses 21 down to 31, he emphasizes the fact that justification is by faith alone. He emphasizes we're justified freely by his grace, verse 24, through redemption. That's the second key word. Redemption is the purchase of a slave where the entire purchase price is paid to free a slave by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. And this word halaskami that's used in the Greek goes back, it's a word used to describe the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Old Testament related to the Day of Atonement on the Jewish ritual calendar. So these words, justification, redemption, propitiation, righteousness, these are the key words that we have to understand. And so the principle is that man is now just, is justified by faith alone. It excludes boasting. It excludes uh, uh, the law. Uh, verse 27, Paul says, where is boasting? It's excluded. Where is the, but what of law, of works? No, but by the law of faith. So we have to be careful here because Paul uses the term law, you see, in two different ways. One in reference to the law of Moses, one in reference to simply believing the gospel, and he calls that the law of faith. In the same way, he will refer to works in terms of meritorious works, in terms of, of uh, trying to gain the approbation of God or be justified on the basis of these works. But sometimes he'll also refer to faith as a work, but it's non-meritorious. Faith is simply doing something you believe, not in the sense of trying to gain uh, gain favor with God. Faith, the object of faith is what has the merit, and that is Jesus Christ. So his conclusion in verse 28 is, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith 
apart from the deeds of the law. And it's not just the ritual of the law. It is obeying all of the 613 commandments that are in the Torah. Then he gives an illustration, and the illustration comes from the Old Testament from Abraham, that Abraham was justified by faith. In Genesis chapter 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and as I, as I taught when we went through Genesis, this should be understood is God had just reiterated his promise to, to Abraham that his blessing would come through a child of his own, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's not when he believed God, and, re- and it was imputed to him as righteousness. He had already done that. He did that before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. But it was that Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, the righteousness of God is imputed to him, and it is on the basis of faith that he has received righteousness from another source. It's not his righteousness. And so then uh, Paul goes on to give a couple of illustrations uh, from David, from the Psalms, um, in the next verses, in verses 5 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 12, he shows that Abraham was justified. The statement of justification is prior to his circumcision. So it's prior to the law. It's prior to circumcision. It's prior to the giving of the Torah, all of this. And it shows that justification is by faith alone. It's not related to the law. It's not related to circumcision. And it's not related to the possession of the oracles of God. It is by faith alone. And so then in verses 13 through 16, he goes on to show that it is not by on the basis of the Torah, but in verses 17 to 25, he argues that it is on the basis of faith alone. Verse 22 it reiterates Genesis 15, 6, it was accounted to him or it was imputed to him uh, for righteousness. Then in chapter 5, we get into the benefits of justification. Chapter 5 covers the six basic benefits of justification. First verse, we have peace with God because we are justified and God declares us just. Therefore, we have peace with God. There's now harmony uh, between man and God rather than enmity. Second, we are able to rejoice in hope. Verse 2, this is the grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Uh, Third, we have the blessings related to spiritual growth. We can glory in tribulations and suffering because we know that this produces uh, perseverance, character, hope, and that all defines spiritual growth. And then fourth, we have a tangible expression of the love of God that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we have talks about the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. And then this, and notice there's the pouring out of the love of God in verse 5. And then we have in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's that uh, manifestation of God's love. That's the fourth uh, benefit of justification. Uh, the fifth benefit is we don't have to worry about condemnation anymore. Uh, verse 9 says, having now been justified, which has happened in the past, we shall be saved in the future, saved from the uh, wrath of God, the future eschatological judgment of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's the sixth thing. So there are five, six benefits of justification, peace, hope, the blessings in terms of spiritual growth, the uh, love of God that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, our uh, deliverance from future judgment, number five, and number six, we are reconciled uh, to God. And then in the last part of chapter five, he talks about, and verses 12 through 21, talks about how God's grace in justification overcomes the deficit that we have because we are born in Adam uh, with the imputation of Adam's original sin. And so even though by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, uh, verse 19 states, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So it is not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of Christ's obedience and his righteousness that the many will be made righteous. 
So that concludes the first part, which deals with justification of God, uh, uh, justification by faith that God's uh, uh, righteousness has been revealed in terms of condemnation of all mankind, number one, and number two, justific- uh, justification by faith alone is available to every single human being. Then in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we have sanctification. Sanctification is the outworking of our justification. Only the justified person is now free to live and to express the righteousness of God in his life. And so in chapter 6, Paul talks about the fact that we are all, uh, talks about how the uh, sanctification in relation to sin. In chapter 7, he deals with our sanctification in relation to the law. And in chapter 8, talks about our sanctification in relation to the Spirit. The foundation is given in the verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6, that we died to sin. At the instant of our salvation, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that instant, the tyranny of sin, the tyranny of the sin nature, is broken. Prior to salvation, prior to justification, you can't do anything but sin. Everything comes out of this corrupt nature. You can produce morality or immorality, but it all comes out of that corrupt fallen nature. It doesn't cut any ice with God. So the unbeliever only has one option, and that is to operate on the basis of his sin nature. But once you are justified, we have a new nature given to us. The power, the tyranny of the sin nature is broken, and so now we have to live in light of that freedom from sin. Uh, Verse 7 says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 11 says we get two, a couple of commands given in verse, or three commands given in verse 11, 12, and 13. Number one, reckon or consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Number two, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And number three, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. So three mandates to the believer that he can now do this. He has the freedom to do this because he has died to sin. And then starting from verse 15 to 23, he's saying that uh, believers are transferred from the position of being enslaved to sin to being enslaved to righteousness. And only when we live in light of that righteousness can we have the real life uh, that we have in Christ. And that's verse 23, a verse that many of you have always heard relates to uh, salvation, but it doesn't. It, it's, this is in the sanctification section of Romans. Romans 6, 7, and 8 isn't talking about how you get justified. It's talking about how the justified person lives. And so Romans 3, 23 uh, isn't in the right. If, if that has to do with justification, Paul put it in the wrong place. It has to do with uh, experiencing the full, abundant life that God has for the believer. The wages of sin is death. That is, for the believer living in disobedience, then the end result is not spiritual death, but it's carnal death. It is it is a non-productive life. But there is a productive life and the fullness of life uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7 describes our relationship to the law, that we have been freed from the law, and that the law cannot provide uh, justification. Uh, the law is uh, uh, was under uh, in the Old Testament. They were under the law, and Paul tried to live under the law, but he experiences the frustration that he cannot fully, consistently, totally fulfill the law. Uh, the law is designed, he says in verse seven, to expose sinfulness. Because whenever you sin, whenever you break the law, you realize you can't keep it. This is verse seven. He says, "What shall we say?" Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So that is, it, the law exposes the fact that we can't keep it, that that is not the path to justification, yet it is, uh, the law is still good. Verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just is good. So Paul concludes then in verses 13 to 25 that you can't live out your justification on the basis of the law 
because there's always this conflict in the life of the person just trying to uh, do it on his own. He doesn't do what he wants to do, and he does what he doesn't want to do, and that's the ongoing conflict in the life of the uh, believer not living on the basis of the provision of the Holy Spirit. If you notice, in this chapter 6, 7, and 8, where there's the emphasis on the spiritual life, the Holy Spirit doesn't come into it until chapter 8. Chapter 6 talks about the fact that we are freed from sin. Well, now, if we're freed from sin, how do we live to righteousness? Do we do it by the law? Well, chapter 7 says, no, you can't do it by just pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps. You have to rely on the Holy Spirit, and that is chapter 8. So you can't answer the question of how that's raised in verse, I mean, in chapter 6 until you start dealing with the realities of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 where we're told that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus uh, who, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So we're talking about those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not talking about unbelievers in this passage. We're talking about justified believers. They either live according to the Spirit or they walk according to the flesh. You have those two options. If you're living according to the flesh, then the result is going to be temporal death, carnal death. If you're walking according to the Spirit, then you're going to experience the fullness of God's blessings uh, in your life. And so verse 6 says to be carnally minded, that is to be oriented to the flesh or the sin nature is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so these chapters, the verses here down through verse 17 focus on the benefits of walking by means of the Spirit. And then when we get down to uh, verse 18 uh, through 39, talks about the goal of sanctification, which is our ultimate glorification. And it concludes with the promise I quoted earlier in verses 38 to 39, that I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor anything else can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then that raises the question, well, what about Israel? It seems like God's turned his back on Israel. I thought you said God's going to be faithful and he's never going to break his promises to us. And so now in verses nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to talk about how God's righteousness is vindicated in his dealings with Israel. So in chapter uh, 9, he emphasizes that God has not changed. He has not rejected Israel completely. Uh, to uh, Verse 4 says that the Israelites uh, still have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who's overall. And so that's the foundation. God has not uh, completely uh, left Israel. And so he says there's a purpose for God's rejection, uh, uh, I mean God's uh, seeming rejection of Israel. It's because Israel rejected God. It rejected Jesus as the Messiah when he came. But nevertheless, God still has a plan and a purpose uh, for, uh, for Israel. And so there he deals with the uh, two objections, starting in verse 14. The first objection is covered in verses 14 through 19, where the objection is, well, God really isn't righteous, is he? And so he answers that and shows that God is indeed righteous, and as the sovereign God, he raises up people for one purpose and others for another purpose. This isn't talking about salvation or justification, as we'll see, but the purpose and the plan of God. The second objection is given in verses uh, 19 uh, through 29, uh, which deals with um, his plan for uh, plan for his people and plan for Israel, and that he, as God, has the right to raise up uh, Gentiles uh, for his honor and his glory, and that if he wants to demonstrate his wrath. Uh, to those who've been, who have chosen to be disobedient, that he can do so. This is verses 21, uh, 21 and 22. And so then he focuses on the fact that it is, it's Israel's rejection of God that has led to blessing to the, uh, blessing to the Gentiles. And in the conclusion is then given in verses 30 to 33. Uh, talking about how God has now uh, opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, it talks about Israel's present condition and that they have, though they have temporarily, those many have temporarily rejected the gospel, eventually they will call upon uh, 
call upon God, and chapter 11 deals with that uh, in detail, that Israel's rejection now is not total. There are many Jews that will accept Jesus as Messiah, and there are many Jews that are justified because of that, and that rejection of Israel is not final. There is a future time that will come that just as during this time the, Gent- the, the Jews have rejected God, so it's resulted in blessing to the Gentiles. In the future, the Jews will uh, turn their back to God, accept Jesus as Messiah, and all Israel uh, will be saved. This is the conclusion in verse 26, uh, that all Israel will be saved. Then in chapter 12, we get into the implications, um, implications of justification, that now that we are justified, how does a justified person live? How does a justified person carry out their life in relationship to those in the church, to those in society, in relation to government, to those other believers, some who are weak and some who are strong? That covers chapter 12, 13 through 14, the big transition begins in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this lays the foundation for application. Now that you understand what took place in terms of justification, that's a non-experiential reality. Now that you understand it, you can see how this is to make a difference in all of your relationships, everything in your life. In verses 3 through 8, he talks about uh, spiritual gifts within the local church and how those are to be used uh, for the benefit of uh, other believers. And uh, then in verses 9 through uh, 21, talks about how love, Christian love, unconditional love, impersonal love is to uh, dominate all the decision-making in the Christian life, a rejection of arrogance and self-absorption and turning to humility and depending upon God to, to take care of any personal conflicts that arise. Chapter 13 then talks about government. Remember, he wrote this at a time when one of the worst dictators of all time was uh, ruling over Rome, and that is Nero. And yet Paul nevertheless says, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So even if, in our opinion, the authority is evil or wrong, we're to respect the principle of authority. That's always hard for us to deal with. We're always looking at the person and the office. We have to respect the office, even though we may not respect the person in the office. And, of course, respect for authority always goes back to uh, the basic issues in the angelic conflict. He connects this to paying taxes and customs and respect for those in authority in government. Uh, then this is applied uh, in other ways, and verses 8 uh, down through 14 in terms of uh, how this relates to others in society, that we are to love one another, and, it, and he applies this in terms of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments, that we are to love your neighbor as yourself coming out of the Torah. We can only do this by putting on Christ, verses 11 through 14. Then in chapter 14, we deal with how do we deal with other believers, Some believers are going to be all twisted and they're going to get the wrong ideas. Some are going to try to impose their standards on everybody else. Others are going to uh, uh, go in the other direction. And so here he deals with the issue of how to uh, treat weaker brothers and esteeming one another and honoring one another, uh, even though we may be wrong. Uh, in areas of application and dealing with the law of love towards the weaker brother in the last part of chapter 14. Uh, chapter 15 then, at the very beginning, he talks about the law of liberty, the principle of liberty in relationship to uh, this application of, of bearing others' burdens and loving one another because we are all justified. So there should be a greater measure of love, as Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. It's not just loving your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor may not be a believer. Your neighbor may be uh, an unbeliever, but we are to love love, uh, one another in the body of Christ at a greater level. Then we come to the conclusion starting in uh, chapter 15, 
uh, verse 14, where he goes back to explain his reason for writing again, talks about his future plan to visit Rome in verses 22 down to 33, and then he begins in a long chapter to give greetings to a number of different people who are within the congregation there in uh, Rome. And then he concludes by saying, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, that's once again now revealed, uh, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, that's the Old Testament, according to the commandments of the everlasting God before obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And that gives you an overview of Romans. What's Romans about? The righteousness of God, how you can be justified before the righteousness of God and how a justified person is to live. That's it in a nutshell. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through and think through uh, some of these great doctrines that are within the, the epistle to the Romans, that this is a challenge to each of us to help us understand how we are justified and now that we are justified, how we are to live before you. Father, I pray that you would just uh, challenge us as we go through this study with the way in which we should apply this in each of our lives, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.